This podcast was brought to you by Spartan Sports. This is The Running Game, a rugby podcast that covers the sport from the ground up. I'm Tim Gilbert. I'm joined by my co-host, Matt Dunning. I spoke to you yesterday, young bloke's birthday. Uh, boy, they were, they were making a racket. Any parents know what it's like to have kids in the back of the car? Mate, I had the boys, the three-year-old and the two-year-old, all day Saturday. I had the birthday party on Tuesday for the two-year-old. It was a great day. I love it to death, but I need to go to work to recover. <laughs> uh, just take a deep breath. Well, on today's show, we have two former Wallabies. Guys, you know real real well played a lot at Eastwood both of them Richard Harry and Brett Papworth Maddie Dunning, it is great to be back on the running game. Now, mate, tell us about the 2003 World Cup because we've mentioned it over the course of the past few weeks because it was an iconic time for Australian rugby. It was an iconic time for you. Yeah, look, it was probably the height of rugby in Australia in this country. We came off the back of the 99 win. We're hosting 203. You know, there was such a buzz in in rugby at that time. We were getting 35,000 plus at state games. I hadn't played a test when I played in that World Cup. So I was, uh, they called it a double D. I was the fourth prop. In those days, only three props played in the game. And, you know, I was training the whole time. And I played my first test during that World Cup. We played Nabibia. Uh, I can't even say it right, but we played Namibia and we won 142 nil. I played Namibia. 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 I played 142 tests. Uh, sorry, I played. I played. I played 80 minutes and we we won 142 nil. No tries scored, and Morgan Tuanui played about 15 minutes and scored three. So, you know, that was my first sort of taste. It wasn't really a taste of uh, international rugby. Anyway, we. We go through the tournament and we're tracking nicely, but you know, no one knew what, what, how well we were going to be played in the semi final. We play the semi final at Homebush against the All Blacks, that iconic test where George mouths the words to Byron Kelleher four more years. Uh, it was just iconic. You know, Sterling Mortlock gets the intercept try uh, in the gloves. I don't know why he's wearing gloves, but he's wearing gloves. And he, we, 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 you know, we win that test. And the other thing that happened in that test that a lot of people don't remember is. Ben Darwin had a very serious neck injury. He broke his neck in a scrum. I remember it. You know, I was, I was on the side of the field, and he yelled out "Mayday," which is the correct thing to do when you, you've had a neck injury in a scrum. And Case Muse with the other prop, he stopped pushing, which was great. He went down. It was it was just it was just a eerie feeling. Anyway, I remember the World Cup week, and uh, Eddie said, "Mate, we're gonna we're gonna pick you on the bench." I said, "That's great, Eddie. You got no one else in the squad. That's that's that's, that's a great call." Um, but you know, he said, "Pick me. <laughs> yeah, who else are you gonna pick?" But no, he picked me. But um, you know, I was just I was nervous as anything. And um, anyway, it, before every Wallaby test, you get the jerseys presented by a classic Wallaby. It's a big part of the tradition of playing for the Wallabies. And um, you know, we had some great Wallabies. Uh, do it, we, you know, we've had, you know, some older Wallabies like, you know, uh, Rob Shahady when his lives did one that I wasn't there for, but was apparently a great one. Yeah, Nick, Nick Shahady. Nick, yeah, Nick yeah. Shahady, sorry. Rob's his, Rob's his nephew who does fat pizza, my bad. Anyway, um, you know, it was, it was incredible. And he has, he has some great ones. Anyway, World Cup final, you're expecting a, a great Wallaby to come in. And anyway, we didn't know who was going to do it. I'm playing World Cup final anyway. We come down the lift, so I'm coming down the lift. I see it sort of an, an ambulance at the front and don't think much of it, you know, because, you know, you're focused. I mean, we, we go in there and we're, we're about to get the jersey presented and the classic Wallabies presenting the jersey for the World Cup final in a full neck halo, wheeled in on a, on, on a bed, was uh, was Ben Darwin. And um, it was the, one of the most emotional scenes that I've seen, you know, not a dry eye in the room. 
and uh, you know George Gregan when he because he obviously he's the first one who gets presented by by the classic Wallaby uh, grabbed his jersey off uh, off Ben and used it to wipe his eyes and uh, and then then they called out the rest of the team and uh, yeah it was a pretty special uh, special moment that I'll always remember and. Um, one that, um, you know, luckily Ben obviously never played rugby again, but he made a full recovery on many other levels. You know, he walks, runs, he's, you know, he does everything else in life other than rugby. So you call it a full recovery and uh, was a great player and, and would have been even a greater player. But it was a it was a great special moment. Obviously, the World Cup final didn't go away, um, but what a great test match and what a great moment for Australian rugby. And I'm just hoping that the same thing could happen in 2027, albeit we win this one. Yeah, well, Johnny Wilkinson's retired. That's a fantastic story. Boy, it's, it, uh, it, it gets you emotional just listening to it. Uh, Matty, this is the running game. We've got so much on the way. Coming up next, former Wallabies Eastwood president, Brett Papworth. <laughs> All right, former Wallaby Brett Papworth is the president of the Eastwood Rugby Club in Sydney. And look, I'm happy to say he joins us right now. How are you, Pappy? I'm really well. Good to be talking to you, boys. Mate, great to have you on the on the line, Pappy. And uh, we go way back from Eastwood. And uh, people don't know you used to be – I was one of your uh, players that used to manage. Why was, <laughs> yeah. I, why, why was I the best player you ever managed? <laughs> <laughs> I the, the thing I do remember, Matt, was when you and Lottie Takiri had to front the CEO <laughs> uh, over some shenanigans somewhere. And uh, yeah, look, not a career path, <laughs> not not a career path I'd recommend. Not managing Matt Dunning, no, not at all. So, Pappy, more importantly, uh, you've had a great career, but I wanted to just firstly chat on the Eastwood stuff. You're a, the president of Eastwood. Uh, yeah. You've been involved with Eastwood for many years. You're a stalwart. You love it. Why are you so passionate about Eastwood and how's Eastwood going? Uh, well, look, yeah, been there. it's been a long time. I've been on the board since uh, the turn of the century, so that's 2000. Um, president for about the last 15. And I, I think it's because no one else wants to do it. So it's sort of... Um, it's sort of by default, but since we planned our move out to the hills some years ago, it, I, I, I sort of a bit committed to seeing that through before I move aside. But it's just it, what I love is that there's 150 odd kids, men, young men, uh, every week who get on the park and and to be able to give them an opportunity to you know wear the jersey and you know be a strong club and and enjoy the tribe that young, I think young men sort of really benefit from, I think it's crucial. Not enough of it and too many kids are giving the game away. Well, Brett, look, I've had an insight into Eastwood uh, this year, only this year really closely because uh, I mean, I've mentioned it before on the podcast, my young blokes playing in the under-12s. But I've, uh, what I've noticed is such a great spirit at the club uh, from the magnificent men. They all know it off by heart, your team song. And the history of the club going back to Jack Shute, of course, the Shute Shield named after the first president of your club. Yeah, look, look. An interesting start. 1947, we started. It took us 52 years to win our first first grade premiership in 99. We were granted the land by Colonel Tom Milner. Um, and so about 63, we, we moved to the current site at TG. And we've been in grand finals along the way, but never won any until 52 years after our 
after our start. And we've, I mean, the 20 years since then, it's been really strong. We've we've been in 13 grand finals, won six of them, which when you think about it over a 20-year period, that's sort of Melbourne storm-like, you know, that that's that's pretty serious. Missed the finals only once um, in the last 22 years. So, look, we're strong. I don't, I, I'm not sure why, but we do, we focus very much on, the players and being them being able to give their best on a Saturday, basically, and we'd spend money on very little else. Um, yeah, and we're, and we're hard to beat. So, so Pappy, obviously, you spoke about the moves to the hills. That's been a bit a bit of polarising topic, not only in Eastwood but in, in in New South Wales and Australian rugby. How's that move looking? And um, well, how will that add, or how will that detract from Western Sydney rugby? Well, the way Western Sydney rugby's going, you would argue that. Uh, it may be the only rugby presence in Western Sydney. Um, look, look, the game spends nothing on uh, the future of, the, of itself. You know, there's no money invested in the long-term health of the game. We have our own development currently, and we obviously will have a hell of a lot more when we move to Castle Hill. But look, it is a misunderstood uh, transaction, if you like, when we sold T.G. Milner. Northride RSL had a 90-year lease on the property anyway back in the 90s. So that, that's virtually owning it, you know. So nothing could be done um, because they were the long-term tenant uh, and you couldn't sell it to anyone else because they had this 90-year lease hanging over it. Now, Northride RSL, God love them, um, they were sending us broke, not necessarily intentionally, but they wouldn't allow us to charge Northride RSL members entry so that everyone that used to be an Eastwood Rugby member simply joined the RSL club and got in for 10 bucks a year every game for nothing. So we were going broke and there was no, so we don't have a choice either. Demographically also, the area changed quite dramatically. I mean, Eastwood and Epping and the schools that used to play in that area don't play anymore. Our big rugby school is Oak Hill, um, the King's School, obviously, William Clark College out there in Castle Hill. Uh, and our biggest junior club by miles is Dural. Um, so it, it makes sense for us to move where a lot of our members and players come from. The other thing is that Northwest Corridor with railway lines and all the way, I think in two decades or thereabouts, it'll be developed all the way to Windsor. Um, and I think it's pretty good rugby heartland and we're, we're prepared to spend a bit of money on it. Both my boys play for Dural, so I'm going to be a bit biased. It's a good, strong club. How do we get more players playing? You mentioned that earlier in the discussion, we need more playing. How do we do that? And what is Eastwood and others doing to get more players to play? Well, we're working with a lot of the schools. Um, Craig Hawkins is our – we pay for him. He, he – and whenever the game is in financial difficulty, that. Development offices uh, go by the wayside. But we have one who does a lot of work in schools, a lot of work with the women, a lot of work with the boys. He coaches one of the Oak Hill teams. So we're out there doing our best. And when we move to the hills, hopefully we'll be able to spend even more. We are developing an academy that we hope to run in conjunction with the Western Sydney Academy of Sport, which exists uh, currently at Penrith. They don't have a rugby program, but are very keen to have one. So we're well advanced with David Telfer, our head of Colts, um, heading up a Western Sydney Rugby Academy. 
Now, that's going to mean hopefully that good young talent don't have to go into Daceyville to Waratah's headquarters three and four times a week um, to get decent rugby development. But the question you asked about how do we get kids playing, that's a tricky one because whilst the game's not played in state schools, the player pool is is falling and the game just cannot rely on Scots and Joeys and Riverview providing a handful of Angus Crichton types that get contracted at 18 years of age. And it's not working. So everything we've done for the last 15 years in rugby clearly is not working. But nothing is changing and there is no investment in future kids playing the game. There's no investment in Western Sydney. I think, you know, they sit back and let Penrith and Parramatta and they're going to fall by the wayside because they don't provide any incentive for kids to come and play. There's a lot of rugby types out in the West. Look at the Penrith Panthers. Think about the number of kids who aren't quite at that level and would love an opportunity to have a crack at rugby. They're they're there, but you've got to provide a decent program for them to, to play in. Pappy, couldn't agree more with, with, with that development stuff. Um, look, I think the AU and Rugby Australia, uh, sorry, Rugby Australia have made, I think the stand deals had a big impact on rugby in this country and I think it's making a, you know, more people wanting to play. But touching on that development officer piece, that that's a big hole for mine. How do we, how, what what does Australian rugby or need to do or what, what clubs need to do to, to get more development officers? Because that's, that's the big hole at the moment, I see. Well, we've got to spend money. I mean, you talk about the stand deal. I mean, Rugby Australia is desperate for the TV dollars, but not so it can invest it in the long-term health of the game. They they use that money to fund themselves. Like, there's no point having 100 people at head office when the game's dying. Eventually, someone has to make a tough call. Look, I know we've got to pay for professional players and a a professional rugby program. I mean, you've got to do it, right? So we want our Wallabies to be good. But the Wallabies can only ever be top five and six in the world because we've got what we've got. There are there are no kids coming out of state schools and we've got to somehow invest in the game. So if the rugby, if rugby Australia's got 30 million bucks from a TV deal, and I'm not sure that that's the number, but... If you're using it to fund your head office bills, then the game doesn't benefit at all. So I'm yet to see that the game benefits. The other issue for kids is the nature of the game and some of the laws of the game. It is it is increasingly a collision sport for big boppers. You know, 200 breakdowns a game where big 120-kilo blokes battle for half a metre mm-hmm. almost eliminates the smaller kid at 15 or thereabouts, when it starts to get physical and kids start to really grow, if you're not into that, you go somewhere else. But can we change a global game like that just in Australia? Can we do that? Oh, we can. We, yeah, yeah, absolutely we can. But but you're right. It needs to be a, a – those rules need to be changed by World Rugby if you want to be serious about it. There's no point us going down a, a hybrid rule path when World Rugby – you know, like seeing what they're seeing at Twickenham. So you're right, but it is an impact here because what AFL does, 80, 80 million bucks gets spent by the AFL, p- predominantly in northern states, 
on kids' development. They're going after primary school kids, which means their numbers are growing dramatically and at the same time as junior numbers grow, so does the fan base. So you've got more Giants fans and Swannies fans and, and it's exponential, you know. R- rugby's going mm. the other way. Now, there, there are some green sprouts as far as I can see and we mentioned this with Jim Tucker last week. In contrast to where we were last year, because I thought last year there were parts of, and, and maybe shortly you know, before that, it looked like a desolate landscape rugby union. It looked like there was no way out. But with Stan, with Cadbury taking over from Qantas, because many thought that no one would, there is an opportunity here, Brett. There is an opportunity with a lot of what you're saying, um, if we can get this working for this game to propagate into the future. Yeah, I agree. I mean, we've, there's some terrific players. I mean, when you look at our, the top of our rugby tree, and admittedly we're not winning too many games against the Kiwis, but we're not far away and we've got some terrific talent. But unless they start spending money on attracting the best kids at 15 and 16, which we're currently losing to other sports, although having said that, rugby league's got the same issue um, because of the collision nature and the fact that everyone wants a 100-kilo athlete, and it drives the smaller kids out of the game. So somehow you've got to not be so focused on youth development. I mean, we, we the Waratahs are a good example. We contract our best young kids at 18 and 19, and we send them out to learn their lessons against the Crusaders and the Chiefs, right? I mean, it's just nuts. And we know that our best players are mid to late 20s and they're mature and they're tough and they're hardened and they've learned their lessons. But we, if you haven't made it by mid-20s, you haven't made it because they've got all these kids they've got to cater to and they're scared of losing, you know, the Angus Crichtons to Rugby League and the um, Cameron Murrays, et cetera, who were all rugby kids at GPS schools. And Suwali, there's another one. I mean, so they sign them young for fear of losing them, but they can't win anything at 19 anyway. Talented 19-year-olds cannot win against the All Blacks because you need tough 28, 29-year-old blokes who've been around the block. And our system doesn't cater for that. For example, the Waratahs aren't the best available team. They are not the best available New South Wales team. And I could pick with, with some shoot shield mates of mine, we could pick a shoot shield team that would, I'm not saying we'd beat them, but I tell you what, we'd give them a run. And I think a lot of people who follow club footy know that the Waratahs are not our best available state team. And that's an issue for us. And I don't know how you fix that because the system currently is all about youth development, identify the talented kid because you've got to snaffle them early or legal get them. And it's a it's an issue. I don't know how to fix it other than grow your player pool. Pappy, mate, I, I, I love your passion. I love what you're doing for, for rugby and, you know, I love the fact that you, you don't always go to status quo. It's been great to have you on the show. We'd love to have you again because we, we didn't even get to ask you about the 42 beers and the Bledisloe, which is what I was waiting to do. But uh, thanks a lot for coming on, Pappy. <laughs> Thank you, guys. All the very best. Good, good to talk to you, Timmy. See you, Matty. We do have a star-studded show today. Coming up, former Wallaby prop Richard Harry. 
G'day, this is Tim Gilbert. And I'm Shane Lee. Together, we'll bring you the only podcast you'll need to get your daily dose of sport. With episodes out Monday to Friday afternoons, ready for you on your drive home. We've got a quick hit of sports headlines, keeping you up to date with the news you need to know. And we'll take a deep dive into the stuff you've always wanted to know. Cannot wait. Follow us on your podcast app so you don't miss it. We'll see you then. Well, it was an amazing era for the Wallabies, the late 90s, early 2000s, and of course uh, in there as front row with his great mate Phil Kearns and others was Richard Dick Harry, and he's with us now. How are you, Richard? Very well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. So, Dick, an amazing career. Um, You know, 37 tests during the Wallabies' time at the height of the game, 99 World Cup. How did you enjoy? How how was your experience with the Wallabies? Because you you, you didn't miss many tests in in that era at all. Yeah, I know 37 just sounds so paltry, doesn't it? It's incredible. But, um, mate, look, just to be honest with you, so lucky. I mean, uh, obviously everyone doesn't get to pick the eras that involve, but mate, uh, lucky on a number of things. I was, because I've obviously changed to prop uh, a little bit later in my career, I was only ever going to have, for example, one World Cup. Um, so to chalk that one up was awesome, but also be involved in a period of time when there was so much amazing cattle getting around, um, both obviously on the playing side, but also, you know, guys like Rod McQueen coming in and, and really taking uh, rugby from a coaching point of view into a new st- stratosphere, a big step change. And that's so all those sort of things put in together, mate. I think it's just an overriding feeling of, you know, being very, very grateful that I got to be part of that. Um, and even to this day, mate, it's just given me so much joy, mate. Very lucky. It's a great game that's had a wobbly old ride the last few years. Do you feel a sense of optimism going forward, Richard? Has has the game bottomed out, so to speak? Yeah, look, I think it has. It's very much a renovator's delight. I think that was put on the coaching ad. You know, you've got the sort of best, uh, you know, the, the worst house in the best seat, street, so to speak. So there is a lot of optimism from that point of view. And, you know, getting out around country footy, uh, which I do, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, there's no doubt rugby is extremely strong in its grassroots levels. It just needs the opportunity to come together. And I think if we had to use one one word to describe rugby, uh, I think, over the last few years, it's, it's just basically been fractured. Um, I think Rugby Australia has got itself very, very much back on a, on a level playing field and ticked a couple of huge boxes in regards to governance, um, you know, resourcing uh, in regards to people and also from a financial model. And I think New South Wales, just to do that, it's been a bit of a, a glacial slide into where we are at the moment, but it's manifesting in, in a pretty shit season. Uh, pardon my French. Uh, but again, there's enough good stuff there and there's enough green shoots that I think just given the right environment um, a couple of key appointments and particularly in regards to the Waratahs coach which uh, you know hopefully we should get a short listing of that in the next couple of weeks they're critical performances because as I said I think the cattle there uh, there's an enormous amount of desire so I think we've just got to basically pull together uh, a few of those bits and pieces and um, yeah I am very optimistic for what can come out of that. Yeah, Dick, a little bit back to, back to your career. I've never got to ask you this, but obviously you touched on it earlier. You moved from the back row to the front row. Not many people have done that, but many have tried and have been successful at it. You know, how, was, how, how did you go about that? Obviously, you went from first grade to, to fifth grade to do that. How did you do it and how, 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 how was the process? Well, I'm really interested by that. 
Yeah, look, it was interesting. I was running around, as you said, I, you know, I'm still stuck on 97 first grade games at Eastwood. They never invited me back. I mean, it's ridiculous. Um, but yeah, a lot of, and I look, I got to stage actually, I was running around just after I got married, obviously put a few kilos on on my honeymoon, running around down at uh, Kiama. And Bob Dwyer was sitting next to my old man. He said, has Richard ever thought of playing in the front row? And so, no, we always used to joke about it because my old man was a, a loose head problem. We talked about it in the car on the way home. This is in 93, so I think it was about 26 at the time. And and we sort of dismissed it. But about halfway through that season, um, being simple, simple maths, I had 1% chance. If I did that, I had 1% chance of playing for Australia. Uh, but if I stayed in the back row, it's probably zero. So I thought I'll bugger it. And that's, as you said, when, when I about halfway through that club season, dropped back to fifth grade at Tighthead, went sort of fifth, uh, fourth thirds over consecutive weeks. Someone said uh, loose head's easier. I'm always happy to take the easy road, so I jumped over <laughs> to loose head um, and dropped back to fourth grade. Saw the sort of remaining three or four games out over that season. And then in the off-season, um, the Merging Wallabies were going away the next year, and I sort of thought to myself, you're not going to – I'm not going to be a show for that, however, you know – uh, hard that was might be unless you're actually on the stage I need to be playing first grade and I could ruck and maul and tackle and run around having four four years in first grade and I sort of said to the club can you trial me and um, for whatever reason they probably they, they said just why don't you stay in third grade and see how you go this year and so I said well that's not going to really work for my agenda so I rang Sydney Uni up and said look do you mind if I come over and trial and they said we're not promising you anything I said no problem just throw me in the deep end and that's where it took off so that was 94 I made the emerging wallet at the end of that year and then uh, sat on the bench, or uh, my Waratahs the following year, sat on the bench for the Wallabies in 95. So then, and then went from there, mate. So it was just one of those things, as you know, Matty, it's, it's you know, I liken it to golf. You've just got to get out there and hit as many golf balls as you can. For me, it was about scrummaging and line out and the tight play. And the more games I could play, the more I could get exposed, the faster my learning curve was going to be. So, but um, yeah, it was a interesting little changeover, but it, Worked out okay in the end. Yeah, it's a great story. And they say success is that intersection between inspiration and perspiration. It's a great story for young people, uh, Richard. It really is. I, I know that you're just adjusting the goalposts. You know, they're all saying you can't change the direction of the wind, but you can adjust your sails. And as long as you go hard at it, you can get there. You know, that, that's that's a great message for young people who and, and young people in rugby. Oh, look, I agree. I mean, I'm, I'm a big one on application. Um, you can have a pretty ordinary plan, but if you execute it violently, within the rules if you execute it hard you know you're, you're a big show and you can adjust the plan exactly as you just said Tim as you go but I think you've got to really just basically have a crack and I think that for me and you, it was as simplistic as you want to make it I mean a lot of people I did have a lot of people along the way so you know what are you doing I mean there was one bloke at Eastwood who uh, gave me a lecture one night saying you know, finger in the face after about a few stubbies of uh, reshes, I'm sure. But, uh, but you know, basically telling me that, you know, props are not made. I was stupid. And what it was I think I was doing, I should get back to the back row for the betterment of the club. I was like, oh, thanks, mate. So you're right. And I think for me, it was just about um, just having a crack. And and obviously, I love footy. And, and if there was an op- a tiny, tiny, tiny opportunity to play for my country, I, I was prepared to take that. Had no idea where it was going to go. As I said, it was um, the hard yards and particularly learning the dark arts of scrummaging. And again, I, I think golf is the best analogy because you never quite master scrummaging. Um, you know, you, you can be really proficient against big units. You might struggle against a little 12-stone technician from Ulster. There's all these sorts of little nuances come into it. And, and for me, that was actually part of the fun is, is honing your craft and getting to a point where you were competent and confident in what you were doing. But um, as I said, it was it was a, an amazing journey and it culminated in 
in the last couple of years of when we went, you know, my first test for Australia, that first year, those 96 test matches, they were horrendous. We had a record score against the, the All Blacks. We had a record score the following year in 97 versus the Springboks. And that was like, well, shit, what the hell are we doing? You know, we're all a bunch of bloody rookies. But 70% of that side went on to win the World Cup and went on to win. So in 2000, when I finished up, we owned every piece of silverware we played for in 24 months. So that was the nice thing. It was very much a journey and, and the nucleus of the success at the back end was very much framed by the hard yards uh, that we did in 95, particularly 96 and 97. So Dick, going back to obviously you're involved with the Waratahs a bit in this high-performance role, do you see any similarities between the 96-97 Wallabies and moving forward? Mate, it's a, it's a good point, definitely. I think there's a couple of key appointments they're going to take to bring that little cake mix together. But I do, you look across the side, mate, there's, there's you know, there is tremendous application. There's a lot of talent. And to be honest with you, we've got to stop talking about it because, you know, we can talk ourselves over a cliff, but there is a lot of talent coming through. But it's a, it's a matter of managing that. I mean, it's going to it'd be easier to cruel it if you, if you don't put the right environment in place. Uh, but if we can, I say it's, it's it's critical the person who we, we uh, select as the coach in the next few weeks. Um so um, we've got a broader brains trust, which is helping us out. So it's not left up just to Richard Harry and Matthew Burke. I can assure everyone. But it, that's a critical important because, as I said, that, that's a big part of you know, Southwise Rugby being the Waratahs and, and, and just knitting the whole system back together. So I'm very confident if we can get the right environment, we're going to get some really good upside. Because there, there has been a lot of you know little sparks we've seen. The, the guys can't obviously get on the right side of the ledge in regards to win-loss, but they're, they're, they're putting chunks of phases together. And at the end of the day, we know it's an 80-minute game, so you can't play for 60 minutes and you know rack the queue but there's enough in there I think to build on on you know the quality of players quality of cattle um, some of the things and how they're executing we just need to finesse that and that's the role I think of that that the head coach will be given pretty quick is or immediately I should say is here's everything in front of you what, what are the what are the immediate wins we can get in regards to starting to get some sort of semblance of you know a, a championship team but it's going to take time as well as we know it's it's all about being in the saddle so Really long-winded answer, but no, I, I think there are some crossovers, and ultimately, I think uh, I definitely wouldn't be doing it if I wasn't as optimistic as I am. So, we're quite excited, and that's the other thing—to be involved in something where you're part of the process, uh, as opposed to sitting on the sidelines chucking rocks, which is you know the worst thing. I think just being, uh, you know, an agent of change and helping um, bring along what's already there is, for me, one of the most exciting things personally. Yeah, well, it's, and it's great to have people like you involved uh, with regards to repairing a few of these fractures that you mentioned earlier. Uh, look, Brett Patworth, Eastwood president, was on the show earlier and he was mentioning the whole idea, and this is a bit of a three-pronged question, of the of the Sawalis and Crichtons and Murrays going to rugby league when they were rugby union guys to start with. Also, the idea of do we have the best guys at the Waratahs available through club rugby? How do we get everyone playing club rugby again. Yeah, look, that's a really, really good point. I mean, at the end of the day, I mean, New South Wales produced historically 75% of our wallies. There was a huge amount of leakage um, in regards to other states and other sports. So we do have to ask ourselves that question. But again, it's a little bit of supply and demand or, you know, carrot and the stick that we've got to give these guys a reason to stay. They're not going to stay just because they were born in New South Wales. That's I think that's fanciful that we assume that. So we've got to build a product around that they, you know, it's like the Kiwi rugby. Boys want to stay and play for the All Blacks. It's a huge attraction. It's an allure to not only play for your for your state, like if you're a crusader and you're and you're born and bred in, in Canterbury, but to wear that All Blacks jersey is is it's a big magnet. So it'll stop guys traveling. I think we need to get the same thing um, here in Australia. We've got to get that that desire to play not only for your state, but also for Australia. That's one part of it. 
But the other things we touched on before, I think club rugby is a huge well of opportunity, which um, in my my opinion, this is just me, that, that I don't think we're managing as well as we could be. I think, again, going back to some of the models that we've got in place at the moment, we're, we're quarantining some young fellas. We're not engaging uh, at the right level at Shoot Shield in regards to bringing either young guys or actually guys who are performing on a week-to-week basis through. So we need to have a look at what those pathways are. For me, you've got to be able to sit back as a school kid and there's a clear line of sight to a Wallaby jersey and there's got to be that connectivity there can't be any head walls or whether it doesn't make sense or I have to spin out into another sub-organisation etc etc I think there's got to be very very clear pathways into a Wallaby jersey because you've got to make it aspirational um, but again, it's coming back down to putting structures and processes in place that enable that uh, and make it all very, very transparent. So there's a fair bit of work to do around that. Um, as I said, I think there's a huge amount of, of, of opportunity and talent sitting in the shoot shield, but we just have to get those processes right to make it easy. Um, Dick, you mentioned about the coach and you mentioned about the Waratahs. You need a few, you know, a couple of signings, the way I heard you relay your answer. Have we got the money to make those signings and will the coach be Australian? Uh, well, I don't want to be accused of being xenophobic. So, <laughs> look, Australian is, is definitely – that would be a tick in the right box. I mean, let's do the right thing. We, we don't want to develop talent that's going to nick off home. And everyone wants to go home, right? Let's be clear. And I, yeah, ultimately, you want to get home. So, if you're a journeyman coach and you're plotting around the world and ultimately where I think they're born and bred, they would like to end up if, if they had a, you know, a free kick. So, it would be very advantageous for someone to be Australian, not only Australian, maybe even New South Welshman, um, because it, it's important important for them to understand the environment they're going to be in, the environment they're going to be managing and the environment they're going to make better. So if that's if that's going to be one of their biggest skills deficit, like if you were to get someone from overseas and come in, they might have a great – and again, you've got to make sure you give – when you're looking at the positions, not just about broad or basic skill set around coach – like that, that's a given. But for me, it's around, say, understanding your environment. So being born and bred in, in, in a rugby environment in Australia is a real big tick. Um, but also understanding what you're trying to extra- extract out of that, but what you can also put back in is really, really important. So if they're spending a chunk of their time learning about that, well, they're not doing other things because it's only 24-7 that we can operate in. So coming with that, that assumed knowledge would be really, really good. Um, as I said, because number one job will be to, to knit back, to, to bring the whole fractured environment back together. So if they've got an innate understanding, that's going to be a positive. But it's not you know, a game changer if they're you know, off the charts on a bunch of other things where you'd weigh all that up. So it's definitely, a, uh, as I said, a multi-pronged attack in regards to what we're looking to solve for. But you've got to give weightings to, to those various elements as well. Well, it's the game they play in heaven from an old Catholic background. I think there's people lighting candles. We're heading back there here in this country. And look, uh, we, we need to get it right. But Richard, it's great to have people like you involved and, and others that are passionate and just want it to happen and want it to be successful. Uh, as a father of boys that played at club level, uh, we, you know, we need more and more playing the game. And um, thanks for coming on The Running Game. No, absolute pleasure. I can assure you I've got one agenda item, which is to uh, make New South Wales great again. <laughs> Love it, Dick. Love it. Well, boys, Dick. thank you very much. That's it for The Running Game this week. We'll be with you every week with more rugby chat, great interviews. Follow us on your favourite podcast app. Thank you today to Brett Papworth, also to Richard Harry, and thank you to our sponsors, Spartan Sports, and, of course, our wonderful producer, Dan McHugh. We'll see you next week, Matty. Can't wait, Timmy. Have a good week.